So how many of you enjoyed the snowstorm? A few of you, yeah. I, I don't know if you remember, I said that I was going to, or I was going to enjoy this winter. I decided, you know, because winter, I'm like, oh, winter's coming, you know, I came for And I finally said, no, I'm just going to enjoy this winter. And I got to tell you, just really, I enjoyed last night looking at the news and seeing all the high snow counts that way. <laughs> so I enjoyed it. But there is something about winter, at least for a guy. I don't know about, how many of you guys use snowblowers? Yeah. Isn't it cool? Aren't snowblowers cool? You know, when you're out there. You know, and the snow is going, and then you get into a deep pile where they, you know, they plowed it up, whatever. The snow's going. Like I really, last night doing this and saying, okay, I enjoy this, and then um, thinking, I really want my Christian life to be like that, where you know, just you're going good, going good, and then all of a sudden you find yourself in really deep, and then you just and you know, go through it. Uh, so. That's winter so far. We'll see how I do uh, with the rest of it. Well, what does it really mean to be a Christian? What, what is a Christian? A genuine Christian, you know, the real deal kind of thing. If we talk to people about that, there were some people who would, who would use uh, this side if they were a Christian using a, a, just a, a process of elimination, right? Well, I'm not an atheist and I'm not Jewish and I'm not Muslim, so I'm Christian, okay? Well, I think we'd all agree that's probably not what being a real Christian means. And then there are all sorts of polls go on, and then the census as well, and, and they have boxes that you can choose, you know, what's your religion, and, and uh, Christianity, people check off the box, again, you know, the other boxes, and do you realize that 83% of people in the United States check off the Christian box? I don't know about you, I don't feel like 83% of the people in the United States are genuine Christians. Right, I mean, I think we have reason to question that. And so people put themselves in that category. And then that sometimes people think of being a real Christian is about doing good things. And there's even a phrase, right? Well, we did this because it was the Christian thing to do, you know, doing good deeds. But the reality is, is that, and by the way, Christians ought to do good things. But there are a lot of people who aren't Christians who also do good things. And so that's not the, the defining, you know, issue. Um, sometimes people think, well, let's get to living by the principles, the Christian teachings and principles, like the golden rule, right? Treating other people the way you would like to be treated if you were in those circumstances. And, um, and Christians ought to be living that way, but a lot of other religions have some form of the golden rule in them, and, and uh, even people who aren't Christians would oftentimes try to live by the golden rule. So that doesn't solve the problem. So maybe it's a statement of faith, right? Let's go through the statement of faith, what do you believe about God and, and Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Bible, and just go on down and look through the statement of faith. And what we believe is very important, but I, I guarantee you that today we could do some research and find some groups of Christians that have a statement of faith that we would look at it and say, wow, that's, that's good. And then look at them and discover that they hate everybody who isn't like them. And that's not Christian. So you say, well, you gotta be born again. And do you have to be born again to be a follower of Christ, a Christian? Yes, you do. But even that terminology 
Uh, I don't know about you, you can watch and you can see celebrities and things who, who are definitely not Christians, don't even believe Jesus is God, but they are spiritual and they will speak of having a born again experience. So it isn't any of that kind of stuff. And when you start going through and say, okay, wait a minute, all these things, what, what, what's it mean to be a Christian? I think it's fair to ask the question, well, if I, I'm not quite sure what all this, am I a Christian? How would I know if I can't nail these things down? Are you a Christian today, a real Christian? Well, we're gonna to have to go to the Bible, obviously, to, to try to settle this issue. And we're not gonna to try to settle the whole thing today. Um, but we are going to go to the book of Acts. Actually, we're not gonna to turn to it, but I'm gonna to talk to you about it for just a moment. If anybody was probably a genuine Christian, or were genuine Christians, it would have been those people who were with Jesus, right? They got it firsthand from him, and they lived it, uh, you know, out into their lives. And, and the book of Acts is a recording of that, how these people who had walked with Jesus and listened to him and chosen to follow him, what did they do? How did they live their lives? What was going on? And, and so we can you know, start to focus in on what it means to be a Christian by looking at their lives. Now what's interesting is that in the book of Acts, the scriptures never call followers of Christ Christians. That was actually a name that was given to followers of Christ by the people in the area of Antioch because the, there was a church there that was just really following the Lord and doing the things that he wanted to do and they got the name from the outsiders Christians. They were the people who, who follow that Christ guy. And really throughout the New Testament time, it was a derogatory term. Oh, one of those Christians. And Peter talked about this. He says, if you suffer for being a Christian, you know, God is going to, to bless you. But there is a description that's used of followers of Christ and of the church that we don't often think of. And it's two very simple words. It was called the way. The way. At least four times in the book of Acts, it is formally called the way. Now, this implies some things, I think. First of all, it implies that there is a way to believe. And not just a way, but the way to believe. There is a way to interact with God, not just a way, but the way. That there is a, a way to live your life, and again, not just a way, but the way to live your life. And this probably flows even somewhat out of Jesus' own statements when he says to the disciples, I am the way. And of course, the truth and the life, but the way. And so this is what they're talking about, the way, living the Christian life the way it's supposed to be. Believing the way you're supposed to believe. And so what we want to do is, is zero in on uh, starting today and for the next few weeks. Um, what does this mean? To be part of the way. To be following Christ. To be what we would call a real Christian. A genuine Christian. A real deal Christian. And so we need to go to the word of God to do that. And what I want to do is go to Jesus' words today. And what he told his followers, it meant to be a genuine Christian, even though he wasn't using that terminology. So let's go to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 
The Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. Page 1203 in the Bible that's in the chairs there. Now, in Luke here, in the, in the previous couple of chapters, Jesus is warning them about hypocrisy. Uh, he's talking about what it means to serve God faithfully and what uh, it means not to serve God faithfully. Uh, he's talking about repentance and, and that there's a narrow way to, to, you know, to get it right. Uh, challenging them about pride. And then he gets down here to verse number 25 of Luke 14. And it says, now great multitudes went with him. Verse 25. So let's stop right there. Would we like to see great multitudes showing up at church? Yeah, wouldn't that be awesome, you know? We have to get into so many people. We have to add another service and figure out how to handle all that. Yes, and so one of the things that we do as a church is we try to remove obstacles from people, you know, make it so when they come they don't have to feel uneasy by going into a new place and not knowing what's going on. And so we, we try to, to encourage and, and make it as easy as we can because we know it's kind of hard. Jesus doesn't do that at all. He's looking at a different issue. And so here in verse 25 it says, Now great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them, I'm so glad that you're here. You're going to have a great time here today. We're going to sing. No. <laughs> he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. I think, you know, this is going to be, we're going to give our greeters this assignment. People walk in the door. Hey, if you're going to follow Christ, you've got to hate your family and your own life. Welcome. <laughs> but Jesus is making a very strong point here, isn't he? Hating family. Now, we, I think if you've been around Christianity for any length of time and you hear this idea, hate your family, um, You've heard that this is it's really a figure of speech. It's, this, it's, it's a comparison that's a, an exaggeration that's intended to say, hey, your, your, your love for me is Christ. Love for me and following me. When you compare that to how you love people, you know, like your family, that I, I, you just love me so much more that that could look like hate. Okay? Now, but here's what we do. We go, oh, good. But Jesus chose those words for a purpose. And the reality is, is that if we are going to follow Christ, genuinely follow him, we must be willing to choose him over family, if it comes to that. And he's making that very clear. I come before your family. Uh, there are people in our world today and other parts of the world who, where Christianity, you know, they don't have the religious freedom that, that we have, where there are people who choose, when that choosing to trust Christ means being kicked out of their families, possibly even to be killed by their families. And Jesus says, that's what you got to do. That's where you got to live. You got to be willing to hate your family or to, to leave them. To, to follow me, and if need be, your own life. You've got to be willing to give up your life and die for me, if need be. 
And then he says this, verse 27, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And again, this whole idea of bearing a cross, right? That's become a figure of speech in our language. It comes from the Bible. And we think someone has hardships in their lives. And you say that what they're having, they have to bear their cross. And, and, but Jesus is talking to, a, to people who really knew what this meant. Because they crucified people in Jesus' day. And that meant if you were carrying a cross, it meant you had been condemned to die. Okay, you weren't coming back. And this was not just, this was not lethal injection. This was a torturous, cruel, terrible way to die. It was shameful. People looked down on you. And he says, you've got to be willing to pick up your cross and follow me to the death if need be. Be willing to suffer hugely for me. And, and, and both, into both of those, about your family and this, he says, if you don't do this, you what? You cannot be my disciple. Verse 28. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So stop there. We, we get the idea of count the cost from this, right? And, and so Jesus is saying, you, you need to count the cost for following me. And that's part of this here, but I want you to see something. The picture is here that they didn't have what it takes. The story, the illustration he gives is that the person doesn't have what it takes to finish the job. This king does not have the army that it takes to win this battle. And so Jesus says, following this, in verse number 33, so likewise, in the same way, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. You say, what do you mean forsake? How does this fit with this? Well, the idea is this, that the man who sits down to build this house out of his own resources and what he has realizes, I don't have the resources for this. I do not have the ability to pull it off. And so he has to forsake his own resources, his own strength. Okay, let it go, because it's not gonna work. Same way for the, the battle, right? That they're going to go and, and fight this battle. And the king realizes, I don't have enough. I have always counted on my army, but it isn't sufficient. So I have to forsake it. It's not gonna, not gonna cut it. And so Jesus is telling us that if we are going to follow Christ, we must realize that we don't have what it takes to succeed at it. We don't have it. My intellect is not going to be sufficient for me to follow Christ. My, my uh, um, talents are not going to be sufficient for me to follow Christ. Whatever resources I have are not going to be sufficient to follow Christ. And I, so what I have to do is I have to let go of all of that and throw myself completely on the Lord and depend on him to follow him. And so it does come down to, we start to realize that everything in my life, 
I mean, what did it say? How much do we have to forsake? What's it say? All. I have to forsake it all. Now, so we say again, well, this doesn't necessarily mean that you need to go sell all your stuff and get rid of it. That isn't the point. And we go, whew. But we're missing the point when we, Because it isn't a, what it means is I need to look at every bit of my stuff and say, you know what? I am forsaking this all. It, it's, it's not what matters to me anymore. It's not going to own me anymore. It's not, my life is not about this anymore. I am forsaking it all. I am letting go of it. And I will use it however God wants me to do, but I have let go of it already. If God, you know, um, makes it clear to me, hey, I want you to give your car to this person because I have purposes for this. I don't have to wrestle with that. I mean, I want to wrestle and make sure I know that's right, but I don't have to wrestle with it because I've already done what? I've already forsaken it. I've already let it go. And that is how God calls us, and this is how Jesus is calling us to live. And he says, if you aren't willing to do that, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be a real deal Christian. And then he says this, verse 34, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And what he's telling us this, is if you want to try to be a follower of Christ any other way, if you want to be a follower of Christ without having to uh, love him more than your family, if you're not willing to you know, say he's more important than my family, you're like salt that isn't salty. It's worthless. If you aren't willing to you know, bear the, the struggle and the, the shame and the... Um, the difficulties to follow Christ. He says, you're like salt that isn't salty. You're worthless. He says, if you don't forsake all that you have, make a conscious decision and forsake it all. It's, it's just not important to me anymore. Only following Christ is important to me. You're like salt that isn't salty anymore. It's worthless. So I would say to you this to you right off the top. If you're not going to be a kind of Christian that Jesus is talking about here, don't bother. Because it's worthless. Don't fool yourself. All right. That's what Jesus said. Now, I may be the first to say here out loud that that's crazy. That is crazy stuff. Crazy talk. Right? Hate your family. Be willing to just suffer. If, and, and, forsake it all. If you had a politician come to you, a politician who has not always told you the truth, you know, and has twisted things and stretched things, and says, hey, I, you got to choose me over your family, and you got to be willing to die for me, and you got to give up all your stuff for me, don't do it. <laughs> Right? If, if there's a you know, religious leader and maybe you see him on TV and, and you look at this person and you think, I think this guy's lying in his pockets what he's doing here, you know. But he's saying to you, you know, you gotta, you gotta choose me over your family and you gotta be willing to die and suffer and you gotta forsake all you have. Don't do it. If I say to you, listen, you need to choose me over your family 
And by the way, I'm, I'm sincere and well-intentioned. But, but you need to choose me over your family and you need to be willing to suffer for me and die if need be. And you need to forsake everything to follow me. Don't do it. You see, who is saying this? Who this person is makes all the difference in the world. Because it's crazy if anybody but Jesus says it. But see, if it's God who's saying it, the Son of God, the Lord of all, the Creator, if He's the one who's saying it, it might be radical compared to our world, but it's no longer crazy. It makes sense. And so if, if, if the right person is saying it, do it. Do it. The wrong person saying it, don't do it. If the right person is saying it, do it. Go ahead and put that up if you would. So what I want to do the next few minutes here is to take a look at and really try to remind ourselves of who is saying this. Because if we say who's saying, well, he's Jesus. Okay, yes, he's the son of God. We know all this kind of stuff. But do you understand how easy it is to, to say all those words and just ha have it not really make an impact in our lives? And we believe lots of things that we just don't think that closely about and it doesn't impact our lives. So, so let's give this some thought about who Jesus is. The first thing I want to show you today to you is that he is the creator of the world. He's the creator of the universe. Go ahead, and Mitchell, if you go on and get up to that slide, that'd be good. He is the creator of the universe. In Colossians, it says, for by him all things were created. All things were created through him, all things created for him, that in all things he might have the preeminence. It is his creation. He is the one who made it. Now, we say, okay, we get that. But I, I want you to understand a little bigger idea today of what it means that he's the creator of the universe. And so I want to put together a scale model of the universe for you. All right? See my napkin? All right, so what I have here is a BB. Uh, can you see it? It's, it's there, it really is there. Someone said after the last service, how do we know you really had one? Well, I really do, okay? So here's a BB, and this represents the earth. Okay, this, we're gonna make a scale model here. Uh, and, and so this represents the earth. Now, I went out into the parking lot and I found this little grain of sand. Can you see it? Uh-oh. I really did just drop it, and there's no way in the world I'm going to find it. That's all right. If I had the grain of sand, I was going to put it three inches over here. And that's the relationship between the earth and the moon. BB being in the earth and the grain of sand being the moon about three inches away for the scale model, okay? All right. Uh, so, Dave, I'm going to need you to help me out here this morning. By the way, um, I learned something today. That's not a great idea to put a basketball in the oven. These guys, well, you kind of knew that already, didn't you? But it's, it's, it's flat. And I didn't want to get accused of deflate gate. And so I put it in the oven on warm, and it, it worked. But I couldn't hold it.
burning me so bad. All right, anyway, so this represents the sun. The BB represents the earth, the grain of sand uh, three inches away, that represents the moon, and this represents the sun. So Dave, here's the sun. Okay, now what I want you to do yeah, is walk, that, walk toward the back of the auditorium and stop when you think you're the right distance. Help him out, you can coach him, what do you think? How far should he go? Those of you here last service can't give any input here. Okay, how, does that look about right, you think? No, no, he's has to, he has to go on out in the foyer. Actually, he actually has to go out the front door and stand in the front yard. You don't have to do that, though. Okay, so you can come back up with the sun. But honestly, the basketball would be sitting in the front lawn, just outside the, the building. That's the scale model. Isn't that crazy? It's a little tiny BB and the basketball in the front yard. Somehow this, this works, the gravity and... All right, what I want to do now is, is let's go to the end of the solar system. So this represents Neptune, close to right size. So, uh, if, Dave, if I were having you do this, I would send you out and down the hill a quarter of a mile. About uh, probably where it's flat down there. That's where the end of our solar system is. It's Neptune. You know, it used to be Pluto, but Pluto got a bum deal. It's not a planet anymore. Okay, so that's a ping pong. I need to say that because we're recording this. It's a ping pong ball. Would be Neptune a quarter of a mile away. All right? Now, what we want to do then get from there, the next thing out there is the, the next closest star to us. Okay? The next closest star is, is called uh, Proxima Centauri. And actually, it used to be, they think it was one star, and then they found out that there's probably three stars there. And the closest one is Proxima Centauri. And it's about this size in our scale model, okay? And um, to get there, he's going to have to continue down the hill, go all the way to Boston, Logan Airport, get on a plane, and fly to Poland. And there's nothing in between. That's the scale. Okay? And then, since this is a group of stars and they happen to be close together, then we have Alpha Centauri. It's about this size. This might be a little bit bigger. Uh, from that, and Polly's got to go another 250 miles east and put that. How big is the universe? And we're on this BB. How big are we? And yet, the Lord created them all. And if you want to go to the end of the observable universe, that what they believe, they know is there, you have to do this same distance that we just did, 250 miles, the far side of Poland, and do that 10 billion times to get to the end of what we can observe now. Who is this that's saying this? And if we go the other direction, we go smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. We get down to now where they think that, that everything ultimately is made up of vibrating little strings and, and, and they, they vibrate at different frequencies and depending how they vibrate and harmonize with each other, particles act differently. And so the whole universe is made up of this symphony that God hears and knows every part in tune doing what it's supposed to do. Who is the one that's telling us, um, choose me over your family? 
Who's the one who's telling us, choose me and be willing to suffer for me? In fact, forsake everything because I got plenty. I mean, if we were to stop there, wouldn't that give him the right to tell us what to do? We are kind of like squatters, aren't we? <laughs> All right, so he is the creator of the universe, and that is who is telling us. He is Lord over all. Uh, Paul says that there's going to come a day, uh, go ahead and put that up if you would, there's going to come a day when um, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that what? Jesus Christ is Lord. And then when he returns from heaven to establish his kingdom on earth, he's described as king of kings, Lord of lords. That means, you know, he's the one who gets to call the shots. And it shouldn't surprise us because he's the creator of all of this. He is also a holy, righteous, and just God who hates sin. He is so holy that the creation needs to somehow know it. And he created these beings who do nothing but 24 hours a day, seven days a week, from the beginning of creation all the way through, we read the end of the story, crying out, holy, 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 declaring his holiness. He is righteous. He always does what's right. He never does what's wrong. He never wants to do what's wrong. He is just. In other words, there is penalty for sin, and he hates sin. Okay, if he hates sin, where does that put me? Where does that put you? And, and if you hate my sin, you know, well, maybe you can go get a gun and shoot me. I don't know, maybe. But if the creator of the universe hates my sin? Jesus told people this. He said this to them in Luke 12. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say, fear him. God is fearful. He is someone to be afraid of. Because there is, it's like this, that if, if he lets me pay for my sin, it will take all eternity to do so. This is, this is the one who's saying that. And thankfully it doesn't end there, right? He is also a loving savior who gave everything for us. He, he endured this contradiction of taking my sin upon him and your sin upon him. And, and 2 Corinthians 5 it says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What has he done for us? He's made it so that this God who we ought to be so afraid of and tremble before and, and you know, be scared to say, no, no, I have addressed this sin. I hate sin and I poured out my wrath upon my son and that sin has been paid for. You can now come boldly into my presence. Wow. What do we owe him? What do we rightfully owe him and, and can never repay? So what is his rightful role in our lives? 
His rightful role is Lord. And our proper response to that is surrender. To say yes to him about whatever he would say to us. And so when he says to us, choose me over your family, you got it, Lord. Be willing to suffer and if need be, die for me. Okay, Lord, I'm, I'm there. Realize that you don't have what it takes to really pull this off. Okay, God, I'm, I'm there, but help me. I'm depending on you. Forsake everything. Okay, God, none of this other stuff in my life, it, it just doesn't matter anymore except how you tell me to do with it. That's where we ought to be living. I started to talk about this a little bit last week when I said that we oftentimes are doing the Christian thing for the wrong reasons, the wrong motives. Um, if you live by what the Bible says and you go to work tomorrow and every, every day, you know, and you go to, and you work the way God says you ought to work, Will that be a blessing in your life, pretty much? I mean, I know sometimes you might get persecuted, but that's right, a blessing. But if that's why you're doing it, you're missing the point. You need to go to work tomorrow and live the way God says because he is who he says he is. That he is worthy to be honored and glorified. I'm going to go to work tomorrow, and I'm going to work the way the Lord wants me to work. And he says that in the scripture, doesn't he? Go to work and work like you're working for me. I'm the one who rewards you. So you go to work and now you work for God. And God says, listen to your employer. Do what they said. Do this from your heart. But I'm doing this for God. Now, will I experience the blessing? Yeah. But I'm doing it for him. Because he's worthy of that in my life. My life needs to be about glorifying him. Same in your marriage. You know, if, if you follow what the God says in the Bible, your marriage is going to be better. It's going to be more pleasant. All those things. But, but we missed the point. The idea is I need to do, I, I need to fulfill my role in my marriage, whether my wife responds to me or not, whether it's hard or easy or not, no matter how long it is, he tells me, love your wife the way I've loved you. And, and that's hard for me, not because of her, but because of me. But I'm going to do this because God said to do it. Wives, respect your husbands. Why? Because God has told you to do it. And you have to honor God and glorify him. And then, yeah, he's going to work. But do you see the difference? One way, it's all about me. And, and I wasn't used as an illustration, but we would think instead of, me revolving around the sun, God being the sun and me the planet, I, I should revolve around him, right? We take it the other way and we make him revolve around us or we try to. It can't be that way. We have to glorify him. We, we look at our finances and say, okay, God, principles of finances. If you follow biblical principles of finances, are your finances going to get in better shape over time? Yeah. But that's not why you do it. You do it because you want to honor and glorify God in your life. And you know that by you honor and glorify, glorify him in life by doing what he says, the way that he says. And so you go to your finances and you begin to do what he says because you want to honor and glorify him. And yeah, it's going to make a difference in life and he will be glorified in your life. 
We can go through anything, any situation in life you want to think about and say, why am I doing this? And I would say to you, if you're doing something that you cannot do to glorify God, just stop doing it. Just, just quit that. Because we've got to be doing what we do to glorify God. And so it's really going to come down to this, and, and we only spend a little bit of time on it today, but I want you to understand who it is who's saying, this is how you live. This is how to live. He's the creator of the universe. He is the Lord of all. He is the one who is holy and, and is just and hates sin. He's the one who gave himself to save us. You know, and seeing that and, and keeping that before us and seeing that every day will change how we live our lives. Thomas, in, in the New Testament there, he doesn't really believe that Jesus is risen, right? Hasn't seen it himself. But when he stood before Jesus and Jesus showed him the, you know, look, my scars. And when, when Thomas all of a sudden recognized who he was, his immediate response was, my Lord and my God. And I'm saying to you that each and every day we need to look and say, who is this? My, and recognize who he is and then say, my Lord and my God. And see, that's the challenge. Jesus said to those who were following him one time, he says, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? So when you look at our lives and say, you know, am I really acknowledging him as Lord in my life? And you have to decide. It ought to be like one big time decision and then a decision all the time carrying it out. Jesus talking to his disciples says, who do people think that I am? And they come up with all these different ideas. And then Jesus asks probably one of the most important questions that would be asked, who do you say that I am? And that's the decision you've got to make. Said so once and for all and then every day after. Can I challenge you to go all in with Jesus? You don't belong to yourself. You're not your own. He bought you, right? Jesus bought you. You don't belong to yourself. Go all in with him. And that is the place that's the most satisfying life. Do you remember what Jesus said when he says, are you, are you struggling? Are you burdened? Are you heavy laden? Come to me and do what? Take my yoke upon you. That means you're going to let me direct you. I'm going to be the one who's calling the shots. Come to that. You'll find the blessing that goes with that. And so when we talk about what's it mean to be a Christian, well, the way to be a real Christian is to say this and mean it. We surrender to the Lord. And you know, we, you've heard us say that, but once again, that's one of those easy things to say, what do we do? Oh, we surrender to the Lord. We, no, 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 let's stop. We Surrender. We say yes to him. And that is the most important thing in the world that we will ever do. And we do everything else because of this, because of who he is. Let's pray. Father, please transform us by the renewing of our minds as you've promised to do. Help us to change our hearts, our, our, our thinking, Lord, to remember this about you. 
that you are to be glorified, you are worthy of that. And that when we use our lives for anything else, Lord, what are we thinking, what are we doing? Please call us back from that, remind us. It's about you. You are worthy of it and as we follow you, there'd be no greater thing we could ever do, no greater blessings we could ever experience than making our lives about you, surrendering to you. And we confess that we need to be reminded. We confess that we need to be encouraged and challenged and maybe even chastised, Lord, but this is the desire of our hearts here today. So I pray you'll make these things a reality for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, God bless you. You are dismissed. Thank you for being here today.